0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. I've been doing this for three years now, but for listeners who might be new to the show, the idea is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Before I get into the show proper, I thought I ought to mention again that we're going to turn Material Matters into an exhibition this September as part of the London Design Festival. We'll be taking the barge house at the Oxo Tower Wharf on the South Bank, and asking a fistful of companies and agencies to tell visitors how their material will shape our future. It's all very exciting. There will be more details as the year progresses. So I'm delighted to tell you that my guest today is the designer and all-round innovator Elaine Yang-Ling Ung. Elaine founded her studio, The Fabric Lab, in 2013 after stints working with the likes of Nissan and Nokia. Although trained as a textile designer, her work encompasses traditional craft and cutting-edge technology, with clients and collaborations ranging from the Danish textile manufacturer Quadrat to crystal company Shirosky via UBS and a group of traditional artisans in the Guizhou area of southern China. Most recently, she's been working with Nature Squared on a range of tiles made from waste, or to be more precise, eggshells. Elaine is a TED Fellow and has a fistful of design awards, including the Emerging Talent Award from Design Anthology, GGEF's Eco Innovator Award, Shirosky's Designer of the Future Award, and Tatler's Gen Award. Elaine, how are you? Thank you very much for doing this.
1: Hello, Grant. Thank you for inviting me to be on your podcast.
0: No, no, it's a complete pleasure. I mean, we met first over a decade ago and you were living in London. I know you've spent time in Beijing and Hong Kong, but um, where are you at the moment? You're, we're talking over Zoom. Your background isn't giving much away.
1: Well, I'm sitting in my closet in Hong Kong. <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're in a Hong Kong closet in your flat.
1: Yep. I mean, flat in Hong Kong aren't very big, so I have to utilise every part of the space.
0: Yeah. I've been having to ask everybody this for over two years now. But I know in Europe, we have a horrendous situation happening in Ukraine, which means we haven't been concentrating on the pandemic as it's occurring around the world. And I know things aren't great in Hong Kong at the moment, right?
1: Yeah, I think pandemic only just got started in Hong Kong. <laughs>
0: right.
1: Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we are having over 50,000 cases in hong kong every day for the past two weeks and in the past two years i mean the highest number we had per day was a hundred right. so all of a sudden the hospital is completely full um everyone start to panic a little bit
0: so are you stuck in your flat then or how is it working for you
1: um i wouldn't say stuck i mean i'm enjoying working from home <laughs> <laughs> you have to be a bit more positive you know i can't be too pessimistic i mean yes i've been stuck for weeks now <laughs>
0: right interesting how has the last 2 years or so been i know we were in contact on instagram last year and you were living in what you described as a tier 3 city you described it as a factory town so where was that and what were you doing
1: that was in changping yeah i spent uh 2021 in china and the area that I was in actually has the highest density of factory in China. Not sure whether it's sort of highest density of factories in the world, but definitely in China. And um, it's really interesting because there's a lot of travel restriction. So I've decided just to stay in China so I can see as much as possible for myself to visit different factories in China and I visited over 30 different factories and there were different types from like fashion to a sort of interior products, furniture, really trying to get a sense to understand how committed these industries are in terms of sustainability and circular design, or if they were interested at all.
0: And were they interested at all?
1: Well, I think (laughs) Chinese government has got pretty good incentive for a lot of sustainability designs and process. So they are being motivated in in that sense, but they are definitely not all (laughs) long-termist.
0: Right, right. I mean, you've been doing a a degree, another degree in sustainable management, I think, from Cambridge. So the sustainable route is one that you're definitely taking.
1: Yeah, well, actually, it's a a diploma, but I'm trying to assess whether I wanted to do a PhD or another degree. That along that route or not but you know doing a PhD is a 5 year 4 years commitment so I wanted to do like a little bit of study to suss out whether this is right for me or not but in short I think it's really good course because it helps me to understand why different businesses are making different sustainability decision and how to discuss and persuade business and to turn themselves from short-termist into long-termist and use the right language and really be in their shoes.
0: How do you do that? I'm intrigued. How do you turn a company from a short-term view into a long-term, more sustainable view?
1: Well, it's difficult to explain to you within two cents in <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a, a lot of data and proof. I think science is really important, but also I think technology. It's also a very important part of it now. I mean, of course, the, the blockchain technology can also innate a lot of this mm. to help people to go through a trust issue, because sustainability a lot of time. When people can't travel, especially, they don't know whether or how to trust a factory or a company, how their raw material are being sort of harvested. This is probably the most important. and Why do you have to pay so much more compared to a regular standard material? That's the battle. That's all you're really trying to go through.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, on the sustainability subject, should we talk about calcium carbonate? Because your background, which we'll get into, but it's essentially in textiles. The meaning of textiles for you has this kind of elastic quality. I think it's safe to say. But I'm interested when you started working with eggshells, and what is it that you're actually doing with them?
1: Oh, well, I need to share a little bit of background how I get. Yeah, excess. yeah, please. Well, (laughs) back in 2019, I've received an award from Design Anthology. And part of the prize was to travel to Milan uh, to enjoy Milan design week for free. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And I went to uh, Rosanna Alandi and met one of Nature Square's co-founder, Kuhn. And um, I went into the show and I was really excited. I just wanted to tell them, oh, thank you for bringing the work to Milan. This is really great. Not knowing that she's one of the co-founder, I was very excited. I think I show overexcitement. I just jumped on her. I was like, hello, I'm (laughs) Elaine, travelled from Hong Kong. I'm a weaver, but I'm not really a weaver. Here you go, this is my name card. And then she went, oh, a weaver. She was equally excited. I wasn't expecting that response. I was like, okay.
0: (laughs) Can we talk about Nature Squared for listeners who might not know? Because they're an ethical design brand that works with materials like seeds, bark, feathers. But what do they do with those materials, Elaine?
1: Oh, fascinating. They have over 300 natural materials in the portfolio. And they turn them over to hundreds of different type of inlay service design and finishes.
0: Right, so kind of market trade type work.
1: Yeah, really intricate work and something like veneer uh, the service as well. So really intricate, also time consuming. Right. Most of the sort of market are uh, aimed for our China with client.
0: Because they're a Swiss company, but they have, I mean, quite a large factory in, in the Philippines, right?
1: Yes, uh, two self-owned uh, factory in Cebu and the flagship showroom is in London.
0: Right. So initially, you've met Nature Squared. You've both got very excited. Initially, they took you on to train their weavers, right? So how did you end up working with eggshells?
1: Yeah, I think I'm quite quirky in some sense. I, I'm a weaver, but also very easily attracted with different materials and try to understand different qualities. So when I first went to Cebu, to their factory, after the training, I got really attracted to like, all the natural materials they have in the material library. And I asked a lot of questions. And then they have termite nest. They have porcupines. They sp- have
0: termite nests? Oh, yeah. What, in their factory, in their library? Yeah. Right. Dried one. A dried one. Okay. Yes, that makes much more sense. I was trying to work out what on earth they, how they'd store these termites. <laughs> anyway, sorry, I disturbed your flow. We were talking about all the materials they had in their library.
1: Um, porcupine spine. Uh, oh, Yeah. Pheasant okay. uh, feathers, all sorts. I was really intrigued. Like, how can I start working with them as well? Then I looked at a library and I also found out they have different type of shells that they work with from abalone shells to black algae and then eggshells and all different type of eggshells. And so I went back and have a little sort of think through how to tackle this because there's way too many materials and I was trying to find a common thread through them. And then I was Mm. like, oh, hang on a minute. Um, Actually, a lot of them are calcium carbonate. So then I start to look into calcium carbonate and did a bit of research. And then I found out 5% of our planet resources are calcium carbonate, and a lot of which waste and sort of non-harvested calcium carbonate. So how do we work with them?
0: Non-harvested calcium carbonate is like eggs we throw away, is it?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Okay. Because there's a figure that's banded about in the press around this product. There are 250,000 tonnes of chicken eggshell waste produced around the world every year so there's obviously an issue here
1: yeah absolutely and then the most important thing is when people think about eggshells they think oh it's so weak and so fragile there's nothing you can do with it and it smells and each of them only weighted about six gram if you think about it you thought oh it couldn't do much harm to the environment because it's so light and you crush it it won't take up much space but every year that's about over seven million eggs being thrown away just because it's pass its sell-by date so when you add that up together it's a lot of waste and they will be sent to landfill and won't biodegrade because the environment are for it to do so resulting giving out a lot of methane gas that's not good for us not good for the health so for that reason i found that's a really good reason to work with eggshell one for the environment Two, we have abundance of these resources and we can make material and blocks out of it rather than just using as a veneer or inlay.
0: Okay. So you're making blocks of this stuff. I mean, what are, what are the properties of eggshells, Elaine? Was it immediately obvious that, that they were going to make tiles?
1: I mean, working with Nature Square, there's uh, really interesting challenges because the company itself already has 20 years of heritage and history. They're really good at inlay work and Sort of traditional eggshell inlay work is really popular within the company and it's very high end. So it has the perceptions of high end work and how do you turn such a high value work into something for a wider market. But at the same time, sort of you have to keep the brand identity. So that was a really interesting challenge for me as a designer to create a material that can have a diversity opportunity for the company. So then I looked at the data that they gave me, working on a traditional actual inlay it would take over, well, it's approximately 18 to 30 hours per square meter, depending on the finishes and the details. Right. So that's a lot of time. It's real art. So that's not practical if we want to sort of uh, cover the entire house with it. So then I start working with the engineers and the artisans in Cebu, really looking into how do we turn this material into volume. So the first thing I said, oh, we should look into breaking them. So fragmentizing them into a formula. Then we can look into how we can mold them to start with. So tile wasn't an obvious route to start with because I really want to look into what it can do, how versatile it can do to answers um, the brief that was given like that it can suitable for a bespoke market and also a standard market.
0: Interesting. So how do you make tiles? What's the process from eggshells?
1: Well, to start with, we need to have a very uh, steady supply which is fantastic because Nature Square already have a a very good relationship with local central kitchens and also bakeries. So that wasn't a problem. So then we collect them and then we have an egg room uh, to sort out. Okay,
0: you have an egg room. Excellent. Everybody needs an egg room. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) Um, And to sort out and turn them into fragments and, of course, to look the qualities and sort them out into various fragment size. So we're very precise in terms of the fragment sizes that we have, uh, with small, medium, large, for different reasons, because for the colouring reasons, actually, we have two ranges. One is through the baking process, then we get the natural tones, and the other one we uh, work with natural dye to create our own RGB colour, which is really exciting. I love the baking range because... A lot of time when we think about eggs, we use it in baking and also we put it in oven. And I really want to play around with this concept of through the making of carolet, we also do the same, but as a completely different result.
0: Yeah, yeah. So the range is called carolet. Are these eggshells in some kind of bioresin or how do you bind them all together?
1: Yes, it is bind with our resin, but we maximise the amount of eggshell that we can put in. When we started putting the range out, I think we are the first commercial eggshell tiles out there. And at the time, certainly the highest amount of eggshell quantity within a tile.
0: Okay, so you're not telling me exactly. Is this because you don't want to? You're smiling. <laughs> There's a secret <laughs> formula you don't want to tell me. Okay, fair enough. Well, look, let's move on and talk a little bit about your background. Your parents were from Hong Kong, but you were born in London, then moved to Surrey as a child. You then went to school in Yorkshire. So I'm intrigued. What did your parents do?
1: My parents? Well, they're both Chinese, uh, Chinese parents. My mum is a typical Chinese lady. She should work in finance. She trained train as an accountant. And then my dad, um, he's a professional bowler.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> your dad was a professional bowler. Like, not like lawn green. But crown green bowling, like 10-pin bowling. 10-pin bowling, yeah. Wow. International, he he won lots of things. You have trophy cabinets and stuff?
1: Uh, we don't have cabinets for the trophies because he won too many trophies.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't mean to pry, but I'm intrigued. Do you make a lot of money as a champion 10-pin bowling person?
1: No, that's why mom needs to be an accountant, you know.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Would he take you bowling? Yeah. Are you awesome at 10-pin bowling as a result?
1: Yeah, but I never get 10-pin. I only got one pin. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, my, my, my dad got my first bowling ball when I was seven. I think that was the first encounter with epoxy and resin, and I learned how to polish my own bowling ball. It was really exciting because there's so much technology in, in actually in a bowling ball.
0: Okay, so this was your first kind of memory of thinking about materials. This is intriguing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, you get transparent bowling ball and there's like LED, like sort of lighting up in there back in the days already. So I was really intrigued how things get in there.
0: Mm. And what was the the young household like? Were you constantly making things? I think I read somewhere that you picked up your first sewing needle at the age of three, which seems remarkably young, Elaine.
1: Yeah, I mean, there isn't a a lot of health and safety guideline in the household (laughs) (laughs) and a lot of trust. Yeah, I think my grandma was a bit worried. I was too bored at home. And so she sort of decided to start teaching me to make my own things to keep myself entertained. And she taught me how to make my first paper wallet by sewing with paper.
0: And I'm right in saying that you've got straight A's in your A-levels and you have this profound interest, which I'm guessing comes from your mother with a financial background in physics and maths. So I'm really interested what your parents made of you wanting to do foundation at Central St. Martin's.
1: Well, they didn't know.
0: <laughs> I didn't know? <laughs> no.
1: Because I applied for architecture, actually, and I told my parents I wanted to take a gap year. And my mother was like, what are you going to do with your gap year? And I said, well, I want to do an art foundation. And said, well, it's going to cost you a lot of money. I said, well, no, what if I do well and maybe it won't cost a lot of money? And then my mom's like, okay, you won't last for three months or a term anyway so she let me do it and she's just sort of thinking like I won't last because she's heard stuff about Central Saint Martins and it's quite tough.
0: So she she had faith in you is this what you're
1: saying? No no No. what I meant is she had no faith in me.
0: (laughs) Yes that's what I mean yeah.
1: (laughs) But I think she was very pleased that I managed to finish at foundation but she wasn't very pleased that I didn't go on with do architecture.
0: (laughs) Yeah why didn't you do architecture?
1: Well, you know, I studied in Yorkshire. And so it was sort of the right thing to do at the time to, to apply to a university that's sort of within a familiar environment. So I applied to university in Manchester. And that's where I was going to do my architecture degree. But once I was in London, there's no way I'm going to leave London.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Why textiles? I mean, you did this foundation, and was it immediately textiles that appealed to you? I think you wanted to do fashion at one point, didn't you?
1: I did. One, I didn't know what other sort of more professional art degree I could do. You know, I definitely know I don't want to do fine art. And then if you know you do fashion, you can be a fashion designer. And that's a very popular sort of um, profession at the time. But then very soon when I was at uh, Central St. Martin, my tutor told me I'm not right for fashion and I'm a definitely textile candidate. And I didn't quite know what that meant. Do you know now? No, which is quite good. (laughs) Because I think that really suits my character, you know, a little bit quirky and it can be quite flexible. The parameter of textiles is so wide. You can't really pinpoint what exactly is textiles. Textiles everywhere. You can do everything with it. It can be engineering, you know, it can be very much about science, but it can also very much about, like, furnishings um, and and, and fashion.
0: So you ended up doing this BA in textile design at Central St. Martins. What did your work look like at that stage? What kind of things were you doing?
1: Oh, yes. I need to tell you one more thing. Okay, go on. When I was in my foundation, I went to Holborn, uh, because back then it was in Back Hill, like... uh, at foundation and then I went there for, to look at second year work in progress show and then the first time I saw a weave room and I said to my friend I was no way that I'll ever do weave it's so tedious uh, I'll do knit so I made up my mind already to be a knitter when I was in foundation when I was applying and then when I got to BA my tutor said I think you're more of a weaver than a knitter
0: <laughs> did they tell you, again, sorry to keep asking, but did they tell you why you were more of a weaver than a knitter?
1: I guess they know I really like to experiment. And with weave, you can... And I think they can tell I like maths. And you can really calculate and to be really precise with weave. And without knowing, actually, I really like the tedious process. But when you see so many threads on the loom, it's just really sort of puts you off when you don't know how intimidating very intimidating
0: so you did this BA in textile design and I'm keen to know what your work looked like at that stage what kind of things were you doing
1: actually my earlier work compared to my graduation work is very different my earlier work is very messy and then with my graduate collection I focus in metal weaving And I still work with metal because I really love the quality of it, how you have to be really precise Mm. and has to be so careful with it.
0: So it's almost like a form of engineering, in other words.
1: Well, pretend to be engineer.
0: Pretend to be engineering, (laughs) which would have made your mother much happier, seemingly. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So then you did this MA at St. Martin's, which is where we first met. And by this time, you were taking textiles into some really kind of interesting experimental places by working with shape memory alloys and polymers with microcontrollers passing electric currents through your pieces. You had this pretty extraordinary piece called Cluster, where you were trying to mimic the behavior of a leaf. I mean, maybe in the first instance, could you explain what a shape memory alloy might be?
1: So shape memory alloy is nickel titanium. Which when you pass through electrical currents through it, the impulse will make it shrink or expand, so you can formulate it and it's a light actuator to replace a lot of like heavy engineering work potentially. Yeah.
0: And did these kind of experiments did they have a, a practical function? I know that the cluster you could connect to outdoor humidity sensors and that would react to the moisture in the air. I think I described it at the time as a kind of art house barometer. So did you see a function for all this work?
1: Well, when I started the research, I had lots of ideas, but I did a lot of perspective design. You know, when you're a student and then became a researcher, there's a lot of funding needed. So a lot of the ideas remain as idea, but I actually took the idea on brought to a lot of later more commercial art that I did for my client to how do we work with data and also human interaction instead of using shape memory alloys? so I didn't really had a massive piece that involved shape memory alloy but the principle of nature and science remain in a lot of my interactive work
0: okay because you did start working with shape memory alloy why did you decide to give up it's a habit you kicked
1: Oh, Grant, you have to ask us painful questions, you know.
0: <laughs> Sorry. That's, it's kind of my job.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, all to tell you, you know, when you get poor, you have to start sort of, you know, giving some stuff up.
0: Yeah. Okay. So that was why you ran out of money, is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, I ran out of money. I mean, when you're a student there's a lot of sponsorship, but after I graduated I carried on a little bit longer for about a year and did some more shows, but afterwards it was actually difficult to do a big installation when I didn't have like a a very impressive portfolio at the time so it was difficult to find sponsor to carry on the work.
0: After leaving finishing your MA at St Martins you got a job at the design studio of Nissan was it always the plan to go into the more corporate side of design?
1: Mm, Yes and no probably no because I didn't really know after my master what sort of job I could get I did my degree in textile futures for my MA and I didn't really think I would go into a corporate job, actually. I was more like thinking trend forecast or or work in a lab or something. But then the opportunity came up and I went for an interview and I got a job and it was really, really exciting. I learned so much with Nissan. Mm,
0: Because you were working on concept cars for Nissan. What kind of concepts were you coming up with, I wonder?
1: Oh, um, well, I was assisting, so it was in... Um, <laughs>
0: what kind of concepts were you assisting
1: on? <laughs> uh, it's actually the first sports electric car the Nissan had. Yeah, really exciting project. And it's very lucky because this sort of concept car opportunities doesn't come often. And it takes over two years to develop concept cars projects. I went in at the right time.
0: Mm. And this was in London?
1: Yeah, in Paddington.
0: Okay, yes, yes. I remember going to the opening of their design studio back in the day, actually. But then you went off to work for Nokia in Beijing. The career path, I don't know, it seemed pretty seamless at this stage, but you found that move difficult. Why was that?
1: I've been in England for way too long, and I think the transition was difficult for me because I didn't think... Moving to China would be difficult for me because I'm Chinese and I should adapt to the Chinese environment quite easily. Although I didn't speak Mandarin at at the time, but at least I thought I can get used to the food and culture quite easily. Um, But actually, it was not the language, it was sort of the food and a culture that sort of. The food. The food, yeah. Uh,
0: So what was wrong with the food?
1: Well, first of all, I couldn't read the label. So when I went to the supermarket, I got MSG instead of salt. I've got like instant mix instead of tea bags. So it sort of upset my routine a lot. And so I was really unsettled for simple things like that. But of course, I'm from Canton area. Uh, so the cuisine is very different compared to northern Chinese food. The palate's completely different. And I never had northern food before, not once in my entire life. And it's really oily and spicy. So (laughs) it just didn't work out.
0: (laughs) It didn't work out. Nokia is an interesting company to work for, I would imagine. It wasn't the work then, it was the environment, or was it the work as well?
1: Well, the work itself was fantastic because it's such a great, I call it training school, you know, really, they really invest into every single of the employee in terms of, The type of program where you get access to, the training and the fast-paced projects. I work on seven projects a year and I can really see the mobile phones I designed with the industrial designer came alive quite quickly. We work across from model making all the way down to the factory, discuss with the chemists how do we achieve the color. I was specialized in polymer. So it was also really good um, for me to understand the characteristics of material. Um, how do we work with like a mold and baby tool and all that?
0: So a good learning curve in that sense.
1: Actually, it was a very steep learning curve.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard you say on the design anthology podcast that China was very different a decade ago, and I'm wondering if we can unpick how it's changed.
1: Yeah, it's very different a decade ago, especially Beijing. you know when I was living in Beijing, there's a lot of underground scene. Art scene was very interesting. You can test on a lot of ideas quite raw ideas whereas now uh, everything is very proper in Beijing Mm. even a lot more international it was international before but this is sort of I think it lost its charm a little bit you can test a lot more commercial idea but not creative Mm. ideas as such that's how I found it a little bit more cold compared to before.
0: Mm. I mean you've worked on the corporate side of design in China and Hong Kong as well as independently what's the difference between working there and in Europe Presumably they're quite different design cultures.
1: Yeah, I mean, the independent designer, if you don't know China, well, I sometimes I felt like I get a bit lost in China or a bit struggle because you don't know when you can trust people to respect your IP. I mean, now it's much better you know, with that. Because uh, a lot of the media are are very international. A lot of international media have like a China edition and they have really good write-up. So everyone know where the design come from. Whereas I think before the sort of podcast and online was not as available as now. So a lot of people wouldn't know where the original design came from. So that's really the difference. But You have to work with good manufacturers in China. as I think in China, this is one interesting thing. If you go in as a designer, you have to find a good partner that can sort of work with you and fight together, I'll say.
0: Fight together? Fight who together?
1: Oh, the market is enormous, you know. You have a lot of competitions and a lot of really reasonable price point competitors. So you can spend a lot of time to design one thing but Chinese is also very good at re-engineering things I, I'm, I'm not putting this as a negative thoughts because mm. actually they mastered it so well it became their signature you know
0: re-engineering being copying is that what you're saying
1: well I think 10 years ago it would be definitely paraphrasing copying but I think 10 years later now re-engineering's really talk about re-engineering they they can use apply similar ideas and concept or shapes but improved it in a better way
0: okay that's interesting i mean because there is a different culture around copying in china than there is in the west i mean it it is part of a kind of rite of passage of learning how to do something isn't it copying
1: Mm. yeah so i think they become a lot more hands-on and a lot of companies have the R&D department now and they understand the importance of investing into R&D now rather than just copy the look and feel of things. And they understand the application and also how it can improve well-beings. It's also very important in a lot of the products.
0: So things didn't go to plan for you. I'm returning back to your story now. In Beijing, you returned to Hong Kong and you set up the Fabric Lab, your own studio, in 2013. Did you have a vision of where your work would go at that
1: point? I was so naive. I thought I really could design anything. I thought design was the easy part, but I never really thought about like how would I sell it or what market I would sort of focus on. And I thought I can just have a studio and start making things. And I did. And then I realized actually I wasn't established in Hong Kong. I have no connection in Hong Kong. So I have no sales channel, like even for a product or being a design consultant.
0: So in those early days, what kind of things were you making?
1: I went back a little bit on the shape memory, alloy and programming with Arduino. And then I work a lot of uh, uh, interactive pigments like thermochromatic ink and UV reactive ink to create interactive design for kids and also resin tables, quite random stuff, really, that sort of lasted for a bit and then I went off and did some teaching as well and then I was about to give up my studio in 2015.
0: Okay so so what happened to prevent you giving it up?
1: Um, I received a letter from Design Miami.
0: Ah, saying what?
1: <laughs> saying I won an award, a Swarovski Designers Future award and I didn't think I have applied for, for the award. <laughs>
0: Oh, you'd forgotten you'd applied?
1: I haven't applied. I hadn't. Pl- oh, you have forgotten you would applied i have not applied i had not oh you had not applied? Okay. I can't remember whether I received a letter first or email first, but I ignored the first one anyways because I thought it was a scam, you know. And then someone rang me and said, no, Elaine, you really have to respond this because <laughs> 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 someone have nominated you. So it wasn't like a open for application. So it's through nomination. So that really sort of put my mind back into focus of designing something i thought this would be my last chance um it's like make it or break it you know i was sort of on my very last run i have my last few sort of um, month of rent to pay and that was it and then i have to go look for a job so i thought oh let's do it and i made some
0: very good well let's talk about that piece tell me about that piece because this changed it's obviously it was a pivotal moment in your career
1: yeah, really important because, I mean, I'm so grateful that Swarovski gave me the opportunity because they flew me to the headquarter, Vatten, to understand the engineering of Swarovski crystals, the importance of it and the type of products they have applied and to really work with the team. The effort of actually seeing the museum myself and the archive and the opportunity to understand Different cuts and how the lights work with it was really important because sometimes when you have like a brief, you don't get to travel to the headquarters and you really just get to learn something online. The experience is different. So at the time, I was very intrigued how Swarovski Crystal was applied. One, it feels really heavy um, and it wasn't really widely applied in interactive design as a lightweight piece. So then that really triggered my thought of how do I translate Swarovski crystals into a very lightweight and part of the engineering system of installation so that was something that I really want to investigate but then the brief was very funny because it said I don't have to use any of the product (laughs) (laughs) Um, so
0: you pick up an award from Swarovski without actually using any Swarovski crystals in the ensuing project
1: well no I end up using 200 millions of mini crystals Mm
0: -hmm. you ended quite a few (laughs) yeah (laughs)
1: But the exciting part was that was my first large-scale interactive design piece, and the piece was inspired by the Plant Sundew. And I was actually frustrated at that time of how, I don't know if you remember, but during 2015, 14, people were very hooked into Facebook check-in. And so when you go to like a really cool place, it was like, oh, check-in at Basel, check-in freeze stuff like that and then they really don't focus on the work anymore but the social moment rather so the piece sends you, it's sort of like a way to punish people who do the same thing sort of walk past the artwork and took a selfie instead of really spending time with it
0: so what, what would it do elaine okay for the listeners let us know
1: okay so the work would perform for you according to your conversation with your friends so let it learn be an, an argument Uh, or a a very happy conversation. We've collected different data and analyzed the speed of conversations, the volume to identify whether it is a happy conversation or angry conversation or upset conversation, and then the piece will react and move accordingly. But of course, the interesting part was how I've also used natural material, artificial material to work with crystal. So every time when it twists and turns, it has different characters of moving and allows the crystal to bounce differently.
0: Mm. Interesting. Fascinating. I mean, what's really fascinating is you have this extraordinary broad portfolio. You'll be doing a job like that for Shirovsky, and you've worked with brands like Taiping, the uh, carpet company, rug company, and uh, Quadra, the textile, Bohemoth. And then there's this Unfold project that started in Guizhou in 2016, where you were working with local craftspeople in the region of southern China, to bring their work in traditional weaving to a wider market. So how did that come about? And is there a sense that you need to balance what you do? You know, one glamorous project in Design Miami here and another possibly arguably less glamorous project with traditional artisans there.
1: Yes, I think at the time, actually, my relationship and Guizhou started all the way back in 2012. I was invited by a, a professor in Beijing to uh, travel with him to understand Guizhou craft and see how designer can work with local artisans. I was very excited because I've just moved to Beijing then and never really had a chance to travel and never really see Chinese craft in person. It's always been in, in the v when I was in London, you know, behind a glass cabinet. So I was very excited. At the same time, this professor asked me, um, what do you want to see, Elaine? We'll organise it. And I said, like, oh, how organise this him? You know, his schedule. And he went, oh no, I need to know exactly what you want to see so I can make sure these people are back into the village and back home. I was like, what, what do you mean? Did they have to travel really far from the market? I was thinking. And then they said, no, because everyone that he knows works in a factory. And so they don't live in the village anymore. So they have to go back and..." almost, to do a show for me. So I was curious and upset at the same time. I was like, but that's not genuine. It's like, no, no, the work is genuine. It's just, there's no real work for them. So that they are not consistent income. So they have to go to different cities and, and earn a steady income for the family. I was like, okay. So that's really my sort of starting journey. And then I went back a second time. There was a project for Beijing Design Week. And I still don't know them really well. And I just sort of send them a, a, a box of materials, <laughs> which consists of different type of recycled plastics and uh, copper and um, electrical wire. Really exciting.
0: Yeah, what did they make of that, I wonder?
1: They didn't think much of it. They were really angry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and how did they communicate that anger to you?
1: By ignoring it and not talk to me. I went to see them and they said, why are you not weaving with them? You know, deadline is approaching, you know, we've got a show. And they said, well, I don't understand why and how to weave with these. They are really hard to weave with and they're not flexible. What's wrong with my beautiful cotton? What's wrong with our silk? And I said, oh, actually, there's nothing wrong with it. I just want to try something different and fun. And then, She's like, this is not fun. <laughs> so I guess our definition of fun and experimental are very different. And it took a long time to break the ice, to communicate. Eventually, I helped them to fix a loom. And then they realized I'm actually a serious weaver and I like weaving.
0: <laughs> oh, that's interesting. So it's, it was the process of repair that gained their trust.
1: Yeah. So then I, I start to learn more from them to understand what really Mean to them in terms of culture and craft. We, for me, is my degree, you know, like, mm. and then mm. I've learned it in quite a mechanical way and a mathematical way. Everything is in order. But for them, it's a heritage craft that's passed on from the mother and grandmother. And it's by practice, it's hand and heart all linked together. So if they've learned one pattern, then they would only focus with that pattern for their lifetime. Right. And that's very different from the way how we design and weave and innovate. So that took me a long time to understand, really two years to understand.
0: So what did you end up making together?
1: So in 2015-16, I applied for a grant with Design Trust, an NGO in Hong Kong. Um, with the grant, I proposed to uh, do a documentary, really to try to understand what is the key barriers uh, stopping heritage craft to move forward what are the key bridges that we need to build and what are the potentials walls that designer will hit if they go into a situation like this to meet mountain villages we made a 30-minute documentary when we're making a documentary we need content right so i was also prototyping a platform and also a business system how do we work with a department store? in Hong Kong Lane Crawford how do we work with furniture factories and brand Stellarworks? works and how can we actually create products to sell in individual boutiques and how would these being received by visitors and, and buyers and consumers can this become an online product per se and so that's what the documentary were about and we sort of finished building the hub which we- all the facilities enable the villages to be more competitive with dyeing room, sort of heating facilities for the dye for the indigo, sewing room and all that in 2016. And then we start making products. So it was really interesting because, for example, with StellarWorks, so make textiles I brought into the factory and then they will have to come back to me and said, oh, Elaine, this is too narrow. This wouldn't work because the standard of the industry is not like this. We can't stretch. So they have all the facilities that can test out what the industry needs. So then we go back and improve our facilities. And that was such a good way of working.
0: So you're fundamentally acting as a bridge between the artisans in these villages and design brands like Stellar Work. Um, yeah. Mm. And is it ongoing? Is it still happening? Are you still involved?
1: Well, uh, we've stopped the project end of 2020 because initially we wanted to prototype the system, the ideas of how can we make the women in the village stronger to stand on their own feet. You can't keep fitting fish to the fishermen. So the only way to test this program is to let them to run the hub themselves, to really create their own product and not to get involved in the design too much.
0: So they're not back in factories, they are making things. Is that what's happened?
1: Well, I hope not. But um, (laughs) truly, I think it's too short to say, I think maybe in two years' time, if you interview me again, I can tell you that.
0: (laughs) Okay, well, we'll make a date, we'll make a date. Brilliant. So tell me, you've done all these projects, you know, from the big brands to the artisans. During that time, I'm intrigued by how the studio has changed. I noticed an interview you did for Wonderland magazine where you said, I've definitely shifted from being the designer to being the manager of my own company. Is that shift difficult?
1: It's quite natural, and I didn't plan to do that, but I think you have to manage your time and projects really well in order to continue to design. I know the danger is sort of like you focus on just spending so much time to pitch or just to follow up the productions and you have leave no time for research. I think for, as a designer is to be inspired and continuously to work with inspirational partners are really important.
0: You have a team. You have people working for you.
1: Yeah, very, very small team. I have like okay. two assistants. <laughs> That's
0: fair enough. Well, look, we're uh, coming to the end of our time. So I'm going to say thank you very much shortly. But there is a quote, another quote actually from Wonderland. I'm keen to hurl at you and see what you make of it, where you said to them, you're asking yourself really, what am I doing 10 years on for my master's degree? And am I where I should be? Are you where you should be? Oh. <laughs> You're scrunching your face.
1: <laughs> They're such a good questions. I mean, can you ask me again in 10 years time?
0: Well, I can, but let's have an answer now as well.
1: All right. Okay. <laughs> I actually never thought I would, well, let's put it this way. I mean, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing and working with all these natural materials and Spending so much time working with Nature Squared. But also, I never really thought I would have the opportunity to widen my scope so much. I would thought I would spend more time in textiles. But in the past couple of years in particular, the access that I had with all this different quirky natural material and supply chain really inspired me to do more for the community. And sustainability and and not just in textiles in one area.
0: So the future is going to be what? More eggshells? You're in eggshells for life.
1: Eggshell is just the beginning. Calcium carbonate. Just
0: the beginning of eggshells? Yes. More calcium carbonate?
1: More calcium carbonate for sure.
0: Very, very good. Elaine, that was lovely. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you, Grant.
0: And to discover more about Elaine, go to elaineyanglingung.com. As ever, there are images from the interviews on my Instagram page, Grant on Design, and you can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up for my newsletter and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. Finally, and this is really important, if you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern, and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message, the importance of materials, craft, skill and design to a whole new audience. I'm going to be taking a short break, but we'll be back very soon with an array of new guests talking about the materials that change their lives.